like I think a lot of people treat um, replications as binary as yes or no, but I think there's definitely many colors to it, many shades of gray where maybe we don't see a result that we were expecting, but we learn something from that and we realize why we don't replicate it in that particular context, that particular scenario. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of In Plain English. This is a special episode because I am joined by William Nyam. He is a postdoctoral researcher and also one of the steering committee members of Reproducibility, which is an initiative to promote rigor and reproducibility in science. So, Will, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Um, thank you for welcoming me to um, this lovely podcast. I've had a chance to listen to a few episodes, and yeah, they're so lovely. Uh, I like, I love the um, idea behind it to try and put things in in plain English. So yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> and do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more? Sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a postdoc. Uh, so I kind of straddle both cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience. Um, so my research is about attention and memory. And so funnily enough, um, what we hear about attention and memory often is that it's limited. Like we have a very limited bandwidth or a li limited attention span. And that to me means that it's really important what captures our attention or what enters into our attention. And so you can imagine, um, once I started thinking about that, I started realizing, oh, scientists need to realize that their attention needs to be put on the right things as well. And so that's how I ended up in this. Uh, so I've kind of got two sides of my scientific sort of career. I've got the researching attention and memory and how that is, is in, the, in the brain. But also I'm curious about how scientists uh, operate and what they have in mind and how they go about doing their science. So yeah, that's broadly my two focuses uh, in my postdoc. That is super interesting. Um, and that, you know, kind of immediately brings up a lot of things for me. Mostly I feel like my attention is pulled everywhere all at once. And I'm just a grad student. I, you know, imagine that by the time you get to the PI level and you're overseeing several different projects and many personnel within your lab that like, yeah, the how you direct your attention is really important. Like zo zooming out at like a level, it's not just within science. I feel like there's this general feeling in the world, um, in the general population, that our attention is being like grabbed and like taken over. Like, for example, we've got social media and the digital age kind of bombarding you with a bunch of content and content that you don't get to decide. The algorithms feed you certain content and like, so that enters your attention. Uh, and also the idea that, um, you know, misinformation and disinformation, you don't really know what to trust anymore. So that those kind of things, like, I feel like there's a general sort of vibe in the world right now that Thing, our attention and our ability to focus and our ability to think is kind of being pulled and stretched a little. So yeah, um, so it's not just scientists. I think it's like everyone. Yeah. I'm going to grab onto the misinformation and disinformation thread and kind of use that to bring us to our like main topic for today, which is talking about rigor and reproducibility in science and then how that connects with how we um, bring science to the public attention and 
counter misinformation and disinformation and general distrust in science that that is out there. Yeah, for sure. Um, those are definitely relevant threads. Uh, and it's a it's a thing that um, scientists should be reckoning with. Um, and I think it's sort of speaking about attention. It's sort of left scientists attention, this idea that we should be standing up for, you know, what is knowledge and what is the public, you know, thinking about and understanding. We should be contributing to that and have our, you know, expertise and voices being heard. But nowadays, this seems to be in on shaky ground. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, a problem that scientists need to think about. To take an example of like COVID, because we all are thinking about COVID and like the COVID vaccine, like there is this, you know, wonderful and, uh, you know, kind of remarkable science that went into developing the COVID vaccine. Um, and that was a huge breakthrough and a unprecedented rollout. But the way that I feel like the public attention and opinion on the COVID vaccine is so fractured and there's almost like, you know, it's it's not so much that scientists are contributing this like new knowledge and technology to the world so much as like you know, you have one kind of knowledge over here and then you have this other kind of knowledge over there. And 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 the, the other kind of knowledge is is perhaps not true about the world, but it's being allowed to flourish because, well, I don't know, <laughs> that's maybe maybe that's something we can talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, like it, it was a very remarkable thing to have the vaccines created so quickly and on, um, yeah, built upon amazing science. But somehow it got lost in what happened, in the events that transpired. A lot of different voices had their say and sort of added noise to the signal. And scientists, um, and especially medical doctors, like let's say the, the people who were trying to push the message were drowned out. And of course, with a lower signal, then it's harder for the public to sort of evaluate and get the sense of what's right and what's going on. And again, Harkening back to the early things we've already been talking about, like they don't have control over what they see or hear, or whether they can critically evaluate things um, uh, in a in a manner that you know allows them to sift through what seems right or what the scientists are saying and what's not. So, like, yeah, all of this blends together into a, a problem or a mess that we scientists sort of need to react to and figure out uh, something to do about it. And I think, yes, uh, not to go off topic too much, but rigor. Like research rigor and reproducibility is one step towards a solution, in my opinion, on how we can improve our messaging. And um, yeah, again, puts with rigor and reproducibility and transparency in mind, it will put into focus how scientists message or communicate their understanding and expertise and research to public for it to be a common good. So obviously those things are, are related there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the things that's contributing to the noise um, that's kind of drowning out the signal is not just, you know, disinformation that's coming from outside of the scientific community, but from within science itself, there's been a lot of press and attention around how many like scientific articles uh end up not being able to be reproduced, which we I'm I'm kind of building up to that. And, you know, sort of how much science gets wrong. And I feel like this leads to a lot of distrust. And so, yeah, I, th I think something I'd love to talk about is then finally defining what reproducibility is and then talking about like 
yeah, how that that can kind of set our house in order and then how we can use that to build public trust in science. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I suppose, let me ask you a question about like how, how, how would you define uh, reproducibility, especially being an early career scientist, at least more junior than I am? <laughs> yeah, so I, I think it involves a couple of different components, but at sort of the most basic level, it's the ability to take either a technique experiment or like set of data and do the same thing that the original researchers did and get the same result or a result that's kind of, you know, in in a ballpark because there's always going to be noise, especially in biology, psychology, social sciences. There's going to be quite a lot of noise in, in, in physics and chemistry. There might be significantly less. But, um, you know, that in, that involves both repeating experiments and also in more data science, like taking a data set and applying an analysis and being able to get the same result. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, you've touched on all the threads. So let me try and distill them into um, a few things, a few components. So the first one, doing an experiment and repeating it and getting the same thing, I would sort of couch that under something like empirical reproducibility, like the ability to redo the experiment and get a result that should reflect what was originally observed. We'll we'll go through the different definitions. So there's that, and then we have computational reproducibility, which is like getting the data and being able to reproduce the results or the analyses that the scientists did. Um, So there's sort of two arms there. Uh, and then the third part um, that you touched on is how should how often should our replications be successful? Um, you sort of said, yeah, there's of course it's you're going to have some conceptual replications, going to be some noise, and I think that's also been miss missing in the conversation. It's not simply that um, scientists, uh, the way we do science in the modern age, everything 100% of the time will be exactly as we observe there are definitely many different covariates or confounding variables um, that we don't know or that we don't control. We don't have control over yet. Like So it's this idea that science doesn't always get everything right all the time. There is a rate, um, an expectation, expected rate. So for example, um, there are things that we're pretty sure about and that we should see most of the time. But there are also some things that we're not so sure about and that we're sort of exploring, but we're kind of going on a random walk and in the right-ish direction. Um, it's sort of this idea, like I think a lot of people treat um, replications as binary, as yes or no, but I think there's definitely many colors to it, many shades of gray where maybe we don't see a result that we were expecting, but we learn something from that and we realize why we don't replicate it in that particular context, or that particular scenario. So those three, yeah, so those three things together, encapsulate this definition of like reproducibility it's not just like whether you can empirically reproduce or computationally reproduce these results but also comparing it to how often it should replicate or the how often it should replicate in this specific context Uh, so i think that's kind of that nuance has been missing in the conversation for quite a while yeah and i think something else i'd maybe i've been thinking about whether or not would be housed under reproducibility or an adjacent concept is reproducibility across species. I work with mice 
Um, and find we find out a lot about mice brains. We can do so many things to them to like learn about the specific ways that all of the different pathways and areas of the brain work. And then, you know, some of that translates to humans. We're both mammals. The broad brain structure is more or less the same. Um, but the specifics are very different, obviously. And as one of the senior researchers in my department likes to say, mice are not tiny humans. So I think maybe I'd like to house another concept under reproducibility, which is being able to get something that works in mice. How do we translate? And I guess this is like translation, but I think it kind of is an adjacent concept. How do we translate that to people? Yeah, the term that comes to my mind is generalizability. So I work mostly with, well, I work entirely with humans, but humans themselves have different differences. For example, cultural differences. What we might see in Western populations might not be the same in other um, cultures. So for example, this concept of weird countries or uh, weird stands for Western educated, industrialized I've got the R, uh, the rich, I think, and developed. Um, so, like those countries are where a lot of the research is being done. But who's to say that research generalizes to other human populations that um, don't often make contact with the science that we're doing? So, yeah, I, I would catch that under generalizability, and that's definitely a related factor in reproducibility. And harks back to the idea, like, yeah, when should we expect things to replicate or, or not, uh, and when is that okay? Right. Because with people in observation in one group of people in one specific like cultural context might not, you, you know, you could do that same thing somewhere entirely different and think that you're going to get the same result and then be totally surprised and be like, I don't know, why did that happen? <laughs> Absolutely. And then, but that's a, an exciting moment because you can then be like, okay, why did it? We totally expected that to replicate and it didn't. There's something we don't know. We don't know what's happening, and so that al that allows further investigation into the to that empirical phenomena to try and figure out what's going on. So yeah, we're already sort of discussing the idea of like reproducibility in a more like nuanced way, and I think how that's communicated to the public. I think uh, in the public's uh, in the mind in their mind's eye, they expect this sort of science should always work. It should always be a hundred percent like. They, if they know what's going on, then they should be able to get a result or have an understanding or have an explanation all the time. And the reality is that the world is so complex that, of course, scientists don't have, can't meet this ridiculous, impossible standard of being able to almost play God and control everything. So I think in the communication of how science is reproduced, like science re reproducibility crisis, um, what's missing when that's communicated to the public is we should expect some things not to work out. That's just how we science works. Um, and so that nuance is missing to the public. And then they sort of react and they see, oh, none of the things that they're doing replicates or works out or they can't even reproduce the results. And so, and so that they get a panicked message um, rather than the nuanced message um, that we're talking about in our conversation. Right. And I think like that even has roots in how we internally talk about science and talking about like my experiment worked or it didn't work. Right. Like this, this is probably not a helpful framework. So I think, yeah, maybe that would be useful to talk about is like, how do we think about science that maybe doesn't contribute towards this nuanced view of 
like what we're actually doing and what we actually want to be able to convey to people about our work. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so what comes to my mind is like, let's talk about some numbers, right? So we know that, well, it's estimated approximately 3 million articles, scientific articles is published per year. And we know the uh, amount of those experiments or those studies that purport a significant result or positive finding um, is about 90 to 95% of those papers. So that's a ton of papers claiming something. Um, and it's just, it's just can't be the reality that scientists are that good at finding significant positive results. There's definitely going to be some noise in that signal uh, looking at registered reports, which is another way to do science. So registered reports is when uh, scientists give their protocol or their methods to a peer to review and so they can tighten up any confounds that they may have missed and so on and so forth. And um, the work is published so long as you um, follow the protocol that you wrote out in the first stage. The reason I bring those up is that the positive finding rate at, in those registered reports is estimated closer to 40 to 50% in some of the recent estimates that I've seen, which is qualitatively dramatically different different to yes uh, 95% that's in the traditional literature um, as scientists might talk about so the reason I bring up those numbers is um, I think that the the difference between a traditional paper that gets published and the registered report is that the metric of success is different whereas it seems like people we talk about something called publication bias scientists think that positive significant findings are the things that will get them published. And that's the carrot that they're, you know, aiming for. That's the incentive. So naturally scientists will do a lot of things, to, whether in a known fashion or in an unconscious, you know, subtly biased fashion um, to generate those positive findings or those impactful results or to claim positive, like very impactful results when the reality is it's probably not as impactful as they claim it is. I think, you touched on something very important there when you said like it worked or it didn't work. It's like, no, there's the goal here isn't to have a significant positive finding with our research. The goal is to try and expand our understanding of the system or, or the phenomena that, that we're researching or so on and so forth. And so that, yeah, the, the, we lack the culture and the words to sort of talk about how science is operating in a way that, moves us away from things worked or things was good, were good or things were replicated in a sort of dichotomous yes-no fashion towards a more nuanced like, yeah, it didn't work this time because, but we learned this thing or I was surprised that it didn't work. And that that expect that surprise moment led to learning or was a, an opportunity to learn. So yeah, the, all these kind of factors like bubble into this collective problem that uh, scientists are trying to deal with at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, hits on a lot of things that I've been thinking about. And I've been very interested in registered reports recently. I had known about them as a concept maybe for about a year, but um, I visited at Society for Neuroscience, which was where I saw you on that panel and was like, I have to reach out to you. Um, but I also visited the Community for Rigor booth um, and they were talking about registered reports as like a, a component of rigorous science because yeah you you kind of go through peer review first which to me like that kind of sounds smart why are we waiting until we, like we've done all the stuff <laughs> and then we give it to somebody and they're like 
wait, but you should have done different stuff. And then you're like, well, I, I did all this stuff. Don't you look at my stuff? <laughs> right, right. It's, it's weird, right? And there's like a weird, like, I, I spent all this time. There's a sunk cost to it. Like, I spent all this time doing this stuff. And I think it's exciting. Like, and I couldn't have known. Or like, no one told me like this was like, you know, weird or like I could have done this better. And I think that kind of feedback is really important and really missing in science. We've tried at um, other scientific conferences to push something called the pre-data poster. So traditionally at scientific conferences, you have people present their research after they've done the experiments. And you get a ton of great feedback and so on and so forth. But usually it'd be in the context of you already have the data, like maybe you could do these uh, secondary analyses or correct for these things. But there's no real way to take that feedback and uh, on the like and have it change your design or or with, or you may have to redo the experiment again. So you have to invest more resources into the thing when science can be expensive, or especially with like for example with animal research, you you don't want to use up animal animal resources or animal animals' lives um, without carefully you know making sure you're doing the right thing or have sorted out these confounds. Right. Yeah. You don't want to kind of waste things that, yeah, they're alive. They're, you know, of a, a valuable resource, not just in terms of like time and money, but also in terms of like, yeah, you want to respect the mice uh, and not just use them for random bullshit. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, to me, it's just been like that feedback has been missing that sort of quality assurance from an early stage in the research design is you only really get that from your discussion with the supervisor, but not really from someone independent who's like sort of zoomed out a little and being like, wait, hang on. Like, did you think about this thing? Um, and so, yeah, I think, so registered reports touches on that um, where you do have to write a pre-registration, a protocol of what you're going to do. And it allows someone the opportunity to get in and give you feedback before you've done it and like and a moment where you're not where you're flexible you're adaptable you're not like already sunk a bunch of things into how you've done it and you can't change it afterwards like yeah so that's that's the philosophy behind register reports and it seems to yeah it seems to be more rigorous just based on you know for example that the proportion of positive findings found in those registered reports it's no longer at this 90 to 95 percent it's closer to half maybe a bit under depending on the subdiscipline yeah so because people are doing things that think should be done and they're not sort of the things that don't work they're putting in the file oh yeah they're not fishing around exactly for what might work or what looks um like it might be impact impactful or um produce a significant finding yeah yeah and i think too that just changing like shifting towards more registered reports and the fact that that shifts that proportion of um significant findings i think that that would probably start to change the like culture and public understanding around science because when you're seeing you know all the reports that you see about science that like especially the ones that filter down to people who are not reading all of the literature is these like really big grand findings that's like oh we found this huge thing and when that's all you see of science then you're like yeah these people they like know what they're doing they understand the world they're like finding out new things they're always you know hitting the the bullseye right but if that were to shift on account of these registered reports and there's more of kind of a balance between ah you know are we tested our 
hypothesis about the world and we were right and that or we tested our hypothesis about the world and we were wrong and here's why i think that even just that being more of the what's out there in science would do a lot to start shifting the conversation because right now it does look like oh yeah scientists are just right and they're just like you know nothing but net all the time no totally totally um like yeah, I think that, that that message matters for scientists to hear so that scientists know not everyone is like, you know, a rock star and like figures it out first try or whatever. Like scientists need to like accept that, yeah, a lot of things are complex and messy and noisy and, you know, um, a lot of things we get wrong. Um, but I also think, yeah, for the science communicators and the public, that's a great message to hear. Like, it's it's so fun when a science communicator is actually like, yeah, we have no idea. <laughs> Scientists, do, we don't know how this thing works and we're trying to figure it out, but this is our best guess and sort of like couch the um, context in like, yeah, we don't know. That's why we're studying this thing. If we knew, we wouldn't have to do the science and i was actually listening to one of the reproducibility podcast episodes that i think relates to this which was talking about how like oftentimes we can't even really say that we're wrong with a lot of confidence because we don't have a great framework to ground things and we're still trying to figure out the model and the framework that we should be situating our questions inside of and until then you said it earlier we're kind of like wandering around in the dark and like oh we found this thing over here we found that thing over here how do they link together there's like 20 steps in between them and we don't have that picture at all yeah absolutely i think yeah so like the the toy model that you're taught in sort of let's say high school science is that you do the scientific method you do this thing it replicates you get the result and that's how knowledge is gained but then if you go through more of a philosophy of science route you realize it's not just like a straight recipe that generates knowledge or understanding or <laughs> like it leads to perfect understanding of everything or the reality there's a little a lot of theorizing and like tinkering around and exploration and like integrating that needs to be done in in science one of the favorite my favorite examples uh, a great philosopher philosopher of science who inspires me is um Paul Feyharabond, and he's sort of a bit of a scientist def- defeatist. So he's not the best um, idol to have, but um, he talks about in his book Against Method um, how like Galileo figured out like things aren't rotating around us, we're rotating around the sun. And Galileo didn't have all the answers then. He had the telescope and he had some pretty good math and pretty good like understanding um, to put the pieces together, uh, but it took you know, it took a lot to provide, uh, to be able to convince enough people for them to really accept that as a competing theory, right? And even in those times, the church were like, hang on, like, you haven't figured it out yet. Galileo didn't even understand the optics of the telescope, like didn't understand how the light worked out to produce the image that he was looking and making conclusions on. So, you know, another example, another uh, favorite book of mine, um, Inventing Temperature by Ha Sok Chang, you know, how did, how did we invent the thermometer? Like, you can't use another thermometer and say, yeah, this thermometer measures the same thing as this thermometer. No, that's circular. So you need, like, a theory and an understanding of what temperature is. And it took a really long time to figure out, oh, temperature is actually kinetic energy. Like, it took a very long time to figure out that heat wasn't just some force. It was, oh, it's actually the kinetic energy and, you know, results in pressure and movement and, you know, kinetic and, yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. So 
I wish the world could have that like little bit of nuanced understanding there where they're like, yeah, actually science is, has this messiness to it and has needs these theories to figure out what things are. And we can have a practical understanding before we can have a, you know, really new developed understanding of the system that we're um, trying to study. I think something that illustrates this really well that has fascinated me since I first learned about it in undergrad is how um, implants to treat Parkinson's disease symptoms work, which it's it's kind of, you know, a it's brain surgery. So you're going into someone's brain, you're putting a little tiny metal electrode in a part of their brain and the the patient can turn it on. And it reduces the like hand shaking and other motor symptoms that you get with Parkinson's disease. We figured this out because someone was doing brain surgery for a different reason and messed up this area of the brain was like, whoa, I guess that works. And obviously researchers have been working on. So we figured out the practical side first. We figured out like we can stimulate this area of the brain and cause a reduction in the like motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. But why? And we're still in the but why phase. We don't totally know because <laughs> some of these areas of the brain, you can activate them or inhibit them and it will cause the same outcome. You know, in some patients, activating a particular area, you know, has the desired effect and in other patients activating the exact same area does not have the desired effect. And so that gets back to your context of like, well, we're not going to throw this idea out and say it doesn't work because in some patients it doesn't work. We have to understand now we need to go a level deeper and be like, what is different between these patients that makes it work in some people, but not others? Like, what's the context of the brain? And we're still in in that. <laughs> so, yeah, we have we have the practical knowledge and we're still working on like the theory to build around that and and figure out why that works. And if we, if we had figured it out, we wouldn't be doing the science. We'd be able to do the thing that we want and like make the applications that we need. But clearly we have a lack of understanding there. So we need to keep doing it. And then maybe we can improve our practical tools to provide the benefits that science is uh, promising. I think that's another component of the discussion that's missing is that I think scientists have lost sight of um, the fact that science is meant to be a common good. Like scientists, the end result is whether it's, even if it's not practical, even, even, even if it's just basic science trying to develop an understanding of something, that should be communicated to the public for the public to benefit from because it should be a common knowledge, right? And so I think a, a notion of what we've been talking about includes transparency, right? So transparency between scientists, like within the scientific community to each other, because we need to build something upon trust. We can't individually do all the experiments in the world to figure out something. So we have to rely on each other a little bit. So that relies on trust and trust, you know, necessitates a bit of transparency, but also with the public, it's the, the same. We need to be transparent about what we're doing and what we're thinking. And I think, um, at the moment, we're not completely transparent with the public with how we do our forms or how we do our research or how we decide what gets done or, you know, who becomes scientists. Um, there's that there's that obscurity there that sort of makes things a little tricky, and that obscurity actually adds noise to the messaging to the public. I think this move to be reproducible and rigorous involves this move to be more transparent and to think about and better think about how we communicate our science. 
a rant of mine uh, often is that scientists, we have not modernized how we communicate our science. We still stick our work in outdated journal articles, in yes, in boxes that are behind paywalls, that generate a bunch of profit for these scientific publishing companies that don't return to the scientists. It's a ridiculous system that everyone who's involved should realize is a total like inefficient structure. And so, you know, I think a push thinking with the mindset that scientists, uh, the mindset that science should be a common good, or at least something that is consumable by the public if you believe that to be true, then that necessitates communication of the work that isn't behind paywalls or that is designed specifically to communicate the results to the to the public, which may involve an additional form of scholarly output that isn't a paper. Like the paper can be for scientist to scientist, fine. But you know, at some at some point, we've also got to be you know reaching out to the public and communicating and getting in a sort of building a trust and a transparency with them so that they understand, hey, the scientists are, know what they're doing or like are to be trusted when so when an issue comes up that scientists are trying to fix or trying to, you know, apply and say, hey, this is what we know about it and we think we should do this or this thing is coming, we should like react for it or be prepared for it. They're like, okay, yeah, we can trust, we can trust what the scientists are saying, which, you know, collectively we haven't been seeing in no recent times. No, because there's really no format, mechanism, forum, place to do that. Like it's not, it doesn't exist. Science communication is a very currently like individual or small group level endeavor where, you know, some individuals care about it a lot and try to communicate their science to the public in addition to other people in their field. Some people make a career out of it and work for companies or nonprofits uh, in sort of a science communication arm. Some people go into like science journalism and will write stories about scientific articles. But the filter of what gets to that point is sort of even more skewed than the filter of what gets to publishing in the first place. That, yeah, there is not a systematic way that makes it accessible and like interesting something that we're going to go all the way back to your attention something that people should direct their attention towards and should want to direct their attention towards and say like oh i like why not understand about how this thing is and i'm going to go here and there's a place where i can go to get an idea of what this research is about and there's ways for me to then find the deeper you know technical papers and documents if I want to, but there's also this top level that I can go to and learn about, about science and the world. And yeah, that. No, absolutely. Like it does seem to be missing. I mean, there are some outlets. So for example, the conversation, you know, that I forgot what the tagline, it's something like scientific, academic publishing with a journalistic flair, something like this. And, you know, uh, you know, some of my favorite science communicators, Ed Yong, He's who's great. Who writes for the Atlantic? And there's a lot of books, books in the public space that reach that um, communicate a lot of good science. Um, you saw a lot come out of COVID. So, for example, um, Breath, I think by James Nestor, I want to say, um, was a fairly good book that sort of like you know demystified some of the things that were being talked about in during COVID. So, 
like it's there, but it's not really a priority or doesn't seem to be highlighted and the structures don't really work together. You kind of have to create your own little thing. Right. You know, my podcast is my own little thing, <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of trying to highlight some research, but I am but one person. And even if I scale up my ability to do this by tenfold or a hundredfold, that's still a minute fraction of, of science. Right. And a part of it is that you might consider this work as a volunteer or service or, you know, in addition to your research career, when really I think the incentive structures should be that this is recognized as a scientific output or something that you should be recognized for moving forward as in your career as a scientist. But those structures aren't, aren't really there, you know, and because the structures, the ways we do science, don't really think about, oh, yeah, our product or our output should be to the public. So we need an arm for that. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, and I think that thinking of science as a public good is kind of a almost a radical idea in science, because I don't think we treat it that way. I mean, publishing certainly doesn't treat it that way. Um, <laughs> but even if we leave aside how publishing works, I don't think that scientists really treat it that way. You need to, you know, oftentimes, you know, either you read conversations on Twitter, which are not really <laughs> like <laughs> well communicated most of the times, or you have to like pay a lot of money to go to a conference to find out what scientists are talking about, which is is also not treating it as a public good. Right. It seems it's weird, right? Like, and in a, in a world where information is sort of becoming more readily, more readily available, for example, um, I watched a fantastic public lecture by Carl Bergstrom for AMOS. Um, AMOS is the Association for Interdisciplinary Metascience and Open Science. That public lecture is on YouTube. You can find these kind of public lectures if you search for these scientists who are giving talks, and it's great. Anyway, Carl gave a great talk talking about how information it used to be where you had to kind of forage for it and spend time with that information. For example, you had to borrow a book out of the library rather than having it readily accessible at your fingertips. But nowadays, a lot of information is readily accessible at your fingertips and you can just scroll through and find things. But beyond that, you don't even have control over what gets shown up. We have built this way to just scroll an endless pit of information or content that just comes at you that is basically unregulated or it's to be more precise it's the algorithms are defined in a way to keep you scrolling and what keeps you scrolling isn't necessarily the most informative or educational thing or even healthy thing it's things that will make you react make you you know emotionally charged such as some of the content that you probably see on twitter even from scientists who are arguing, right? Like, because um, that's what the the platform wants to generate. Yeah, everything I see on science Twitter is like controversy, argument. Like, and that's not entirely bad, but it's also not done with an aim towards like achieving understanding. It's done, you know, Twitter incentivizes doing this with the aim of being correct and getting you being viewed as correct and getting the most people to like jump in and be like, yeah, that guy's correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but that's not the only way science happens and the only way science conversations happen, which is like, it's just, it's such a tiny slice of how science actually operates that it's like almost like not worth basing anything on sometimes. Yeah. So like scientists haven't adjusted for that. I think scientists haven't really like, even though, you know, we've 
becoming more modern and more advanced with a lot of our skills. And we have built structures for like open data sharing and communicating and all this stuff. We haven't really taken the next step of really taking taking control and sorry, maybe not taking control, but having agency in how we do the science rather than letting these platforms decide how we communicate the science or what is deemed good science. Um, and I don't think scientists have had that light bulb moment where they realize, wait, what we're doing is sort of not helpful for us. <laughs> um, yeah, back, back to attention. Like, you know, we have incentive structures and goals and things like that that take up um, our attention. And sometimes we need the reminders to step back and zoom out and be like, wait, what is the purpose of what we do? And what is the collective, the collective aim of all scientists, right? The collaboration of what we're doing built upon each other's research and understanding and conversations, discussion. What is the goal of that in the end? And it's, you know, to leave a lasting, hopefully positive impact on the world, I think. Yeah. You know, I'm not doing science so that I personally can get tenure. Like that's a pretty circular idea of why you do science. But the incentive structures that exist within hiring and getting grants and, you know, advancing in your career kind of make it so that the more salient thing on your mind is how do I get to the next stage of my career? Because like self-evidently, if you don't do those things and you don't get to the next stage of your career, then you can no longer do what science is actually for. But I think all of that ends up overshadowing the what science is actually for. Right. Yeah. It's it's hard to fight those things. But um, in recent years, I think scientists have finally come together and uh, realize these problems and uh, actually try to fix these things. So uh, Amos I mentioned just now is a collective of scientists who are like, yep, meta-science, we need to do research about research and understand how it operates and have evidence for why the things we do things are maybe not the best way or the, get evidence for the ways we're changing things is improving things. And there's now an, you know, a movement. So one would call it um, the credibility revolution. Um, that's what Samin Vizier sort of termed the whole, if there's a reproducibility crisis, um, there's also been a response. And that response is the credibility revolution that scientists are you know, doing the things to try and promote the rigor and the reproducibility and the transparency and the openness and the um, impact of science. So even though there's a lot like going wrong there's scientists are still fixing are fixing it just like we're tinkering around with other stuff as well and we're also tinkering around with the way we do science and i think that's also an important message for the for the public to hear too we're not just blindly hoping for the best we're thinking about how we're doing stuff and trying to fix it uh so i think that's that's an important thing to say as well there's so much like creativity and experimentation in the realm of how do we do science? How do we publish science? How do we do statistics about science? Um, and how do we communicate science? I mean, in the realm of publishing, as of a few months ago, I don't know what eLife is doing right now, but they <laughs> they were kind of doing a lot of interesting things in how they do peer review, which is, you know, when some of your academic peers get together and, you know, or not get together, but like review your article and try to figure out like, is this good do we think this is ready to be disseminated to the public do you need to do more things elife has been messing around with that you had a conversation with someone i forget his name he was a very interesting person but he works on this thing called the unjournal oh yes david david reinstein yes yeah i thought that the unjournal their model was very creative in how they were thinking about 
being more of a platform for the actual evaluation of the research. evaluation rather yeah rather than like they're not trying to be a journal despite their name they're trying to evaluate and provide some kind of like predictive value to scientists and provide some kind of like oh you know this this has validity or this has like merit to to publish something here and kind of make it and even some of the like more technical details that he was talking about about you know not having it be this like linear paper that you read from top to bottom and you get results that's not even how scientists read papers like (laughs) why are we doing it this way (laughs) yeah absolutely um yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of those kind of initiatives. So at a at a higher level, I think scientists need to be more open to these kind of things uh, and be a little bit more pluralistic. Scientists, you know, are trained to uh, to see things as problems and to have solutions for the problems. And those once you have the solution, those problems go away. But a lot of the things that we're talking about are complex problems that require ongoing solutions and ongoing thought. So I think scientists need to think a little bit more about not treating it as sort of binary, like this will be fixed when it gets fixed, but as a, oh, actually I need to like prioritize and actually think about how I'm doing this uh, continually. And so if you accept that kind of chaos, maybe this is my own chaotic element coming to the fore but like i think science should accept like we need to be trying a lot more things we should be allowing a lot more tinkering with for example the public publishing system which david is doing with the unjournal where he's trying to publish the evaluations of the research and have create a platform where you can trust the research because it's been evaluated by a credible platform and you can see the evaluations you can also rate the evaluations or scale the um, evaluations in a way that uh, is useful for you so like I think like yeah it's 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 fun to think about those things and to see people trying and trying to shake shake things up a little. You know peer peer community in is doing a similar thing of having a platform where scientists in a particular field can get together and you put your research out there and it kind of gets evaluated. I think when I when I started this podcast and then more specifically when I started talking to people about open science, I mean, I did interview Michael Eisen and Alexandra Elbakian, who is the founder of SciHub, a science piracy website. And when I talked to them, which was just earlier this year, I think that I had in mind like science is going to arrive at like the solution to publishing. We are going to replace this singular old model that we have with a singular new model that is going to be good and correct. And I think that in the months since that conversation, I've kind of updated my thinking. And it's like, there's not going to be one solution to publishing. And that maybe that's part of the problem is that we have currently, at least in the United States, one model of publishing. There's going to be many different solutions to publishing. It's going to be context dependent, like what you were talking about earlier with research, which is context dependent. Um, And it's going to be kind of flexible and constantly updating because we don't know how technology is going to progress. We are still, you know, only barely being able to, we're not, we're not really making use of the internet as a technology to communicate research maximally. And then who knows what's going to come next? Like, so I think, yeah, there needs to be many models of, how we do science better, how we communicate science better, and they need to be kind of constantly updating. Yeah, absolutely. That I I agree with you 100%. I think, yeah, I think we've been stuck with this printing press model for a bit too long. We've let it sort of 
take control of us, <laughs> to be frank. Um, and yeah, it's about time we sort of think about that a little bit more carefully, reconsidered what scholarly outputs are and should be. And from that, we could really make strides into how we communicate our research or how we do our research or how we focus our research. All these things are sort of open game for you know, the right for change. And I think that's exciting. That's a really you know, exciting thing to be a part of because you can really have impactful changes on how things are done uh, going into the future. If you accept all the sort of things we've been talking about, one of the common things that is also missing from the conversation is hope. Mm. Even though we've, talk, we've criticized a lot of things in this conversation and talked about how things aren't so great, there's an important message that scientists are trying to fix these things and the criticism comes with uh, hope. We care enough to want it to be better. So that's why we are criticizing and we have hope for things can be better and that we have agency in making things better. And so that's like a, a really important message, I think, that needs to come through as well. That I think scientists need to be a bit more like future thinking and being like, yes, we're trying to make things better in the future at a point that will be beyond when we perish and die. Like those impacts, we're going to move, you know, long into the future, we hope. I, yeah, ideally. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I mean, but we need to yeah go in with that hope. I think that's important. Yeah, I think uh, I see a lot of people, or at least on Twitter, which maybe this is not accurate, but a lot of people approaching these experiments and innovations in publishing, for example, with like, well, why are you doing that? Like, that sucks. I don't like this. This has these flaws. And it's like, yes, it has flaws because we're people and we're flawed and we make flawed systems <laughs> that don't work in every situation yeah right um there's a humility i think that comes with with being accepting that right like yeah maybe like we don't know a lot and because we don't know a lot that means we shouldn't be so quick to judge or knock things down maybe we should let things grow and see what comes up and maybe we can also change our minds and realize oh actually that did better than i expected or this way to publish is makes more sense now than it did to me back when publishing was when I was used to doing it this way. Um, all important insights for to sort of have. And I hope, I think it's starting to become part of the, you know, conversation, the discussion that's happening nowadays in science. I can, I sense it growing. Right. I think it's only gaining steam from just from when I started my graduate education to now i think it's gained steam over just like four years and that's exciting i mean i always talk about how early career researchers um you don't often hear about them in this sort of reform movement you usually hear about like professors or whoever the top brass are doing the work but um so it's often forgotten that you know the early career researchers are the next generation of scientists who are going to take these structures and are going to work within these structures and so for you to say um, oh yeah, like this has already been, you know, I'm already hearing about it and like changing how I'm doing things or reacting. I think that's a really hopeful sign that like things are going to be for the better um, sooner than we think. Yeah. And also early career researchers have a lot of power, maybe not in the ways that, you know, a tenured professor has power, but I think I've witnessed that oftentimes people in those positions of power have bought into the existing system so much that they feel as though they cannot change things because they're so entrenched in in their ways and what got them to that position. But 
there are many more early career researchers than there are senior tenured professors. And, uh, you know, I think something else that's since we're talking about things that are missing in this conversation very often is I think that a lot of conversation around how to improve science, improve science communication, improve um, publishing, improve, you know, what, whatever facet of science you're talking about is very focused on individuals or like small groups of people. Yeah, I think that the role of collective action of early career researchers is under discussed and perhaps our power underutilized. Absolutely. hundred percent. Totally agree. With you. I mean, I, uh, my main involvement with open science has been something through reproduci- reproducibility, which is the, you know, the initiative to try and get early career researchers form community around open science and get that agency to really make a change, even at their local institution. And once a lot of the, the goal or the hope is like if a lot of early career researchers at different institutions band together and try and figure out the best way to do things, you're going to get this critical mass where suddenly this becomes a big part of the conversation, which forces changes in the in the existing structures towards um, a hopeful, more positive type of science. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. 100% would love to empower any junior scientist or any early career researcher to try and get involved in the movement um, in your own little way, even through having these conversations with your mentors or with your lab mates or with someone else or with a friend who's not in science, like in the public being like, hey, what's what do you think about science or how do you consume your content? Just getting starting those conversations and having that in mind and doing things about it, I think it's a really empowering and um, uh, important thing to do. Uh, so yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, that's uh, been my main message for a long time, for a few years, hoping to try and encourage um, early career researchers in to be part of this. And uh, yeah, um, I, I think it's happening. I think we're, we're getting there, <laughs> uh, hopefully. Yeah. One thing that I had been thinking about when we were talking about all these experiments and shifts in publishing is that the underlying way that we think about our ideas and our research and I think needs to change, um, which is, is, you know, maybe a bit more of a difficult thing. But if we want to be more open and transparent with our research, if we want to maximize sharing ideas and collaboration, this model of like man or a woman or a non-binary person is at the head of the lab and they are kind of directing the research. And then, you know, all the papers that are written within that lab have one person that's at the helm of it and, you know, in conjointly with the head of the lab. And, you know, these minds are chugging along to, you know, they had this grand idea and they're going to do this. I think, I mean, as much as I think a lot of people would kind of hate to give that up, I think that that idea of how science works and how progress is made and how I- ideas work needs to change. Um, and then also the incentive structure around being that person who has the idea that does the experiment that gets the result also needs to change. This is a huge topic, but like... No, absolutely. I know. I love that you bring that up. Uh, yes, absolutely. So I've got so many threads going on in my mind <laughs> about that. So uh, let me start with an example. I think... One of the most exciting science um, collaborations that I, in my lifetime, in our lifetime, I think, was the, for me, it comes from the realm of math. Um, it's the distance between 
primes. What the, what is the smallest gap between? I'm explaining this terribly because I'm not a ma skilled mathematician. There's a theorem where you could try and figure out what the the small the like you have figuring out prime numbers is really important basically, and the gaps figuring out the gaps between prime numbers also very important. So like, how far can we get with repeating primes? And so, so the reason I bring this up is that the math community came together. And rather than just have one person tackle this problem and try and figure out a proof or solution, it became a really big uh, community effort in something that resulted in, it's called polymath, where they had this benchmark and they all came together and tried to get this benchmark as low as possible. Um, and that seemed to me as like an exciting way to make progress on something rather than just have one person sit at their table or do the experiments and like figure it out themselves it was a huge collaborative um effort with all the same goal and all invested and in, you know contributing ideas and contributing how to do this thing you know you see this in bigger scale science like james webb telescope large hadron collider like all these examples and in psychology we've recently had the psychology science accelerator which sort of operates on those models too yeah so and that all means like hey it's not going to be like one genius that's going to figure it all out. It's probably we're going to make more progress, more progress faster with a collective, a collective of scientists that we all work and contribute. And it's not about who gets the reward or who gets the the the, the cherry at the end. It's, Who's first author? Who gets the grant? Who? Yeah. <laughs> none of that. All of that superfluous stuff just goes away. Like it no longer matters. And you're right. For people to get to that stage, it requires a lot of rethinking. Uh, ironically, one of the books that reached the general population, I say reached, was published, is a book by Adam Grant, who's a professor in marketing. He's a very famous popular science writer. And he wrote this book called Think Again. And I think the byline is um, the power of knowing what you don't know, something like this. And his throughout the book, he's saying like, oh, you know, you should think like a scientist. Scientists are very good at like not knowing what they don't know and blah, 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 and like, uh, you know, know when to be answered and know how things can seem like they're clear, but actually in actuality, they're not and things like that. And throughout that whole book, I was thinking, no, scientists need to also like hear that message to think again, to rethink. Yeah. And I think if there's like one important key here, it's that scientists should be open to rethinking. Like that's almost your job. Like you should be a rethinker, like be willing to rethink the assumptions that you're, you're in your research or the way you do the research or how you do the experiments or what models and so on and so forth. Like all of that should be baked into how you approach um, doing science, in my opinion. So yeah, those sort of two things together are very related uh, and it's, it's critical. I think it's, it's, yeah, if there's a way to have more scientists realize that or think in that way, we're going to see a lot more positive, positive work, like some, a lot more like prog like progressive science, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that that's, I love the example that you gave in math. Cause that sounds really cool. Just everybody, you know, put your heads together. Like we're all going to figure out how we, how we solve this problem. Yeah. It obviously is, is so anathema to at least like in life sciences how we do things and all of the incentive structures and it really just like you start digging drilling into this and you realize like everything needs to change yeah i think i mean it sounds daunting but in another way it just shows that there's progress to be made and i think that's exciting in some ways like 
yes, we could be the first generation of scientists that rethink all of these models and come up with something that really fundamentally improves how science is being done. And I think that's crazy. That's like super, super exciting. We don't have to accept how things are and we don't have to just sit around and complain. Like you can start to do things or you can take a huge problem that many different groups working on individually would never be able to solve and you can put it out there and be like, hey, let's all kind of take a bite of this huge problem and maybe we'll get somewhere a little bit faster. I would like, I mean, obviously there's larger scale collaborations in neuroscience, but I would kind of love to see something formalized, like a neuroscience research accelerator. Yeah, being being clo- like within neuroscience, you hear about the stories of like, oh, it's always the richest labs or the resource labs that get to do the exciting stuff. And like that, that just, and then you, you hear about like scientists withholding their ideas. They're like, I'm holding onto this experiment design because like, I don't want anyone else to know. Or I don't want those richest labs can't to get scooped. Yeah. Operating with that, like burden, that like just stress. It's just clearly to me a sign that like, Things need to change. Like this can't be the way to way to do it. How? Yeah. How do how do we change science so that we can let go of that stress? And I was going to say the number. So at SFN for the audience, there's thousands of people presenting posters on their research, and some like I was presenting a poster on research that I had already put out as a preprint, which kind of what you were saying earlier, that's maybe not so helpful. Um, <laughs> like what am I going to do with the feedback that I get? The paper's already out there. Um, but you know, a lot of people are presenting research in progress. They have some data, but not all of it. They haven't gotten around to publishing it yet, etc. And, um, are justifiably in this current context worried about, being quote unquote scooped, having someone come by and be like, ah, that's a cool idea. And I have 15 postdocs, so I can just go forward with this and and put out a paper before you do. So SFN has a way to mitigate this, which is you put a little red camera with an X through it over your poster or like on top of your poster. And that's like, you know, you can't record this. You can't, you know, take a picture of it. And I think it's kind of sad. <laughs> like, I don't think it's I, I I don't think it's sad. I don't blame individual researchers for doing this. There's obviously reasons why this has to be in place. But I think it's sad that it needs to. It's a weird behavior, right? Like, it's weirdly guarded in a way that seems antithetical to how scientists and act, how scientific conferences should be operating because... What are scientific conferences for, if not to communicate stuff between each other? Um, right. I have this thing and you can't touch it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's strange. And yeah, it's based on like a lot of traditions, right? Like traditions that haven't been updated and um, could use reforming. Um, and I, so I think the, the core thing there that matters mo- most is removing the sort of individualistic side of things where it's like one one person's tied to one idea or one research project and so on and so forth and having more infrastructures that allow for collaborations that allow for inputs from multiple parties without cost to the original person the first person let's say it's like for the 
let's say, the early career researcher who do who does need a publication to show their worth, to extend their career, and so on and so forth. So we need structures or ways um, for people to be able to contribute to collaborative projects uh, in a way that doesn't cost them. So that's the incent- that's the incentive side of things. But at a, at a core level, it's more the community. I think it's like finding the same people who do the same research that you do or are researching the same kind of thing that you're doing or the system or so on and so forth and being willing to start these conversations and say, hey, let's figure this out together rather than let's rather than be ad- adversaries. A lot of love science is sort of like adversarial in a way where it's like, actually, I don't agree with your theory or I don't replicate your results or whatever. Like, like, like wah, wah, wah. This, yeah, this kind of conflict and, you know, these conflicts generate publications and like, you, you know, as we talked about, like conflicts are, you know, noticeable and stick in people's minds. And so that's a way to game the system, to be, to generate the conflict, be the foil for someone else and publish against each other without actually making progress. I usually make the quip that um, you can have very uh, academically productive debates, but not scientifically productive debates. <laughs> and the fact that those two things are different is like funny. Yeah, so I think it starts with a community-based initiative or just thinking where you reach out to someone who could potentially be uh, an adversary and instead go, no, let's collaborate. Let's work on this thing together. Let's pool our resources or pool our thinking and try and produce something in a way that progresses um, science or understanding and also progresses both of us equally rather than rather than these first author of my publish, me, me get into nature or whatever, so on and so forth, nonsense that really takes up our attention and is just not worth thinking about. Yeah, so I think it starts with, yeah, like a cultural change um, and an attitudinal change, which I'm starting to see bubbling up, but eventually, yeah, it will take, it will take some time for that critical mass to be reached uh, in the neuroscience community, science community at large and so on and so forth. Yeah, that what you just said about finding collaborators who maybe you're incentivized to be adversarial with and instead trying to work together to generate some new understanding that makes me feel really hopeful and excited. And I can think of people in my own subfield of neuroscience that um, I even feel kind of and I think my PI generally does a great job of being very collaborative, but I think that there's even people who have been discussed as like personalities within my subfields that are like, ah, this, you know, this person kind of has ownership over this field and they're, you know, perhaps would have a conflict of interest. So you shouldn't suggest them as a reviewer because they're going to get all like gatekeeping, <laughs> staking their territory and, and gatekeeping who's allowed to study this small area of the brainstem. It's, it's weird, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is weird. Like, what's the harm in reaching out to them and being like, I want to understand this better. I have this like approach to understanding it better. What do you think about that? You obviously have a lot of knowledge. Would you want to like collaborate? Would you want to like advise my project a little bit? Yeah. Even if it doesn't eventuate in an exact research output or experiment or anything, those conversations or discussions can be like really useful seeds for future stuff or like just simply understanding a perspective or where um, conflicts may be perceived but may actually not be, exist. In my field of working memory, there's been a long-standing debate where there were two camps. 
um, broadly slots versus resources. I won't go into the nuances and people who know me will know I've ranted about this repeatedly, but it created this like binary situation where you had camps of scientists, you know, people being perceived one way or if they were like, you believe the slot theory, you believe the resource theory and so on and so forth. And at some point we had to be like, okay, this dichotomy, this debate is silly. And it's really impacting the way we're doing science. Like it's people are scared of having each other as reviewers and blah, blah, blah. There's really lines being drawn in the sand. Recently, I've been saying like, look, these two things aren't actually mutually exclusive. Like you're all right. Like we're all right in some way. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Like why are we binarizing or dichotomizing? And it, it, filters into the students because the students are like, oh, you're on the other side and it's kind of taboo to like actually talk to you when in reality it's just like, no, I think you're great and I think you're, the stuff you're doing is cool. I'm just like an awkward and don't know how to you know navigate the situation. So um, it's yes, really simply starting with a conversation, reaching out, being like, hey, we're both trying to understand this thing. I think what you're doing is interesting and it's definitely relevant to what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it. Maybe there's something that can be gained from talking to each other or understanding how we're approaching um, each other's theoretical understanding or purpose with what they're doing. Um, that's that's super important. And if, if someone is, turns you away from that, it's like, again, so antithetical to science because if, what is science if not trying to change people's minds and understanding? And if you're not willing to try and understand what someone else is thinking, how can you have the... You know, how can you even have the hope of being able to change someone's mind if you don't understand or you just refuse to understand what someone else is thinking about? Well, this is all this rat is all to say it's rare in science, but I think more people should be doing it. Reaching out to potential adversaries and be like, hey, we're doing the same stuff. I'm curious about what you what you think about this. Uh, let's have a conversation. Even if there's no clear research line in the future it starts from that and then eventually you might realize oh there's something that we can combine together or actually you might you might be a great you know um collaborator or contributor on this project that i have and i've needed this help and then eventually we can you know catalyze and energize the this kind of research i think almost i don't want to say always but almost whenever there's a dichotomy it's not true like you I'm trying to think of like a example we learned about in med school that was about, I think, whether viruses cause cancer or whether like genetic mutations cause cancer. And these two groups were very opposed to each other. They're like, no, viruses cause cancer. No, gen like random genetic mutations cause cancer. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, we have since come to learn that they're both right. <laughs> sometimes viruses can cause cancer and sometimes random genetic mutations emerge and sometimes viruses cause the mutations. And yeah, <laughs> like this, this dichotomy was not necessary. And perhaps we would have arrived at that conclusion earlier if everybody hadn't been at each other's throats about it. Right. So some, some dichotomies are useful, of course, like to think about things and like have a framework to try and discuss and research things. But at some point, the dichotomy needs to be rethought. <laughs> and people would be like, wait, hang on, what are we talking about again? You know, that, that kind of thing needs to also happen um, to, uh, to, div to divorce one's like position and ego from the specific camp or theory and sort of be a bit more pluralistic. There's a very famous quote. I think it's, uh, I think it's what, I might get that wrong. So apologies to whoever it's, but it's like models are like toothbrushes. 
no one likes to use everyone uses their one. No one likes to use someone else's. I think a lot. I think about that a lot. I think scientists need to be a bit more willing to use other people's toothbrushes. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's what I mean by that is scientists need to like be able to like see the truth or see the that other position or the other model or the other theory and be like, okay, there's probably something right about it. Where don't I agree or why don't I agree? Or sort of those questions are way more important than dismissing it and being like, oh, that's wrong. Or wait, why why haven't I tried that method? Like, you know, so and so, and so forth. Yeah, I really, I really love that approach. And I think even non-scientists can kind of adopt this approach when they're reading about and thinking about science and, and the science that gets communicated to them is like, yeah, adopt. It's it's so much more of a, a fun position to be in, I think, to adopt a very open approach and be like, I'm just going to find out about this. It's not tied to me and my self-worth. It, like, it's just a thing that's being presented and you know I me mean, this this comes along with education on how to evaluate things on the merits but like what's out there what kind of interesting new things can i learn yeah absolutely absolutely i think that's yeah a really great message for everyone go forth and learn about things <laughs> yeah why not why not um i think to try and hammer that point home, one of my uh, favorite modern philosophers, um, C.T. Nguyen, uh, wrote this paper called um, The Seduction of Clarity. And it's sort of like when things are clear, it lulls you into a sense of um, understanding. So like because something is clear to you, that means like you get it or um, that thing is right. And it, it stops your critical juices. Like you no longer question or rethink. So I think a really nice thing is to try and search for the pockets of unknown, search for the pockets of things where you don't understand or you don't, you don't get it. <laughs> um, and yeah, and try and explore those avenues. That's a, I think that's a fun place to be. I think on that note, is there anything else that you hope that people take away from this conversation? As an attention researcher, my last sort of message would be to really think about what's got your attention. And whether that's the thing that you want um, to capture your attention uh, doesn't have to be science related. It could be, you know, are you devoting enough of your attention to your kids, your family or whatever, your friends, um, to the other things? And I think that's a really important question to ask ourselves. Even if you're a scientist, is science the thing that should be taking up all your attention? So yeah, I think I'd leave on that. I think that's the, the, what I want people to take away. Um, rethink what's um, on your mind. Yeah, I, I love that. And I want people to take away, go forth, form a union, and bring down all of the different systems that are holding us back. I mean, yeah, also a great message. You've got power and you've got agency. It may not seem like it, but um, even small small impacts like at the local level or at the individual level are so important and they're not alone if a lot of people take individual actions together they resonate and can form a critical mass and the wave of open science and rigorous science could crash come crashing down on these academic structures that aren't so great or whatever and we can see progress and reform being made absolutely so they, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. Uh, so thank you for agreeing to do this interview and being on the podcast. No, oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. And I hope our audience and you got uh, something out of it. 
Yes. Uh, I, I think that was amazing. And uh, so where can people find you in the various different work that you do? Nowadays, I'm on Blue Sky, which uh, apparently, unfortunately, you still need an invite code to get to. But if you, you can find me on various social media. Um, if you look for me, William Yam, I'm one of probably only one in the world. So you'll find, you'll find me. Uh, and feel free to email me, actually. I'm one of those weird people who encourage emails to my inbox because I'd love to start conversations and discussions. So yeah. If you want to email me, um, my current email is wnyam, so W-N-G-I-A-M at uchicago.edu. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and again, yeah, we've been talking with William Nyam, um, who is a postdoctoral researcher studying attention and working memory, and who also uh, works on reproducibility which is an initiative and also a podcast that talks about reproducibility and rigor in science. So you can also go check out the reproducibility that's with T-E-A, like the drink. Yes, the drink. Sipping tea, yes. I have I have found it to be a very fascinating podcast and I think probably would be approachable also for non-scientists. I don't think that you'll get too technical most of the time. Yeah, you can hear more about what I'm ranting about <laughs> on the topics that we talked about covered today in more detail at the Reaper podcast. Our music is by Sam Brunwasser. You can find more of his work at soundcloud.com slash visualsnowbeats. As always, you can download the paper and read the transcriptions at inplainenglishpod.org and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at plainenglishsci. That's P-L-A-I-N-E-N-G-L-I-S-H-S-C-I. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time for another episode of In Plain English. Thank you.